We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 7, if you want to begin to make your way there. 1 uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7. But we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. As I've kind of gone through and as we're considering what it looks like over these four weeks to be good citizens, certainly we recognize that we're in the midst of an election season, certainly we recognize because of all the mailers we get, because of what our radio looks like and what our TV commercials look like, and, and, and a lot of the conversations that we have, that it is a relatively intense election season. And so one of the issues that we deal with is an issue of authority. Who has authority? What does that look like for us as Christians? Uh, To whom do we submit? What does that look like? How do we do it? In some sense, I I think about when we send our children to go stay with their grandparents, and and they're on grandparent time, and they're on grandparent snack schedule, and they're on grandparent TV allotment, and they're on grandparent screen time, and just kind of all things grandparents. So just imagine all things to the max, all things very little filter, all things fun. And then they come home, and what does it look like? It looks like a hard reset for everyone. And and existing within their mind is, I still maintain this relationship with my beloved grandparent, whom I'm loving more and more by the minute as I face the totalitarian regime of my parent, but yet somehow they keep bringing the hammer. When we consider in some sense what it looks like to be simultaneously citizens of a kingdom in a kingdom that we've never been to, we've never lived in, but God has created in our hearts a longing for this place, and we dwell here in the now, living in the midst as citizens of an earthly kingdom that Scripture tells us is fleeting and will ultimately pass away. Nevertheless, Scripture addresses how we need to be here and now. Now, I want to start in 1 Peter 2 because I think it is essential for setting our minds and establishing and dismissing some of the things that we are so quickly prone to run to. Peter writes, and he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In essence, the way you respond to those governmental authority figures that God places in existence and establishes is a reflection of your submission to him. He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, yet not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so we see our disposition is to be those who are easy to govern. Now this roils against many of us. I mean, it just kind of hits us in the middle and we're so incredibly frustrated that we'd rather just not read through the book of 1 Peter. But in the providence of God, he saw fit to put those things in there so that we as a 21st century audience might be able to read these things and struggle with their application. Be subject to all those people that God has placed in authority over us. But as we come into this, we recognize that we're citizens of a kingdom we've never been to. We're living here in the midst of a a kingdom and and, and a government. And as citizens of a country, we readily recognize what does our now look like. Look at what Paul writes. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all those who are in high positions, which 1 Peter tells us God has placed there, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then Paul relates, he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let me pray for us once more. Father, would you quiet our hearts? God, would you rid us of our immediate objections intellectually into the way that we receive your word? God, would you rid our hearts intrinsically into who we are as we push back against any form of authority we do not agree with? God, would you help our hearts to be softened? Would you help our lives to be malleable? Would you change who we are and lead us in accordance with your word? God, eternity is at stake for many of the men and women we encounter as they see in our lives a reflection of what we believe the gospel to be, of who we believe you to be. Let us show them a true picture of Jesus. Let us show them a picture of people whose hearts are yielded to your gospel. Let us show them a picture of people who desire to see them come to faith in Jesus. So God, would you destroy the strongholds in our hearts? Would you remove those lesser hopes that we hold onto and replace them with an ultimate hope in the gospel? And would you show us how to walk fully, finally settled on you, having our hope ultimately realized in the gospel you coming in the person of jesus you destining us for a kingdom that we've not been to and with that ultimate hope set in our hearts god would you lead us to walk faithfully in the here and now it's so incredibly important that we not fail it's so incredibly important that we not be tripped up and lead others astray in our pattern of life and in our existence so god we pray that this time would be sanctifying god i pray that this time would be equipping that it would be challenging, set our hearts and our hope on you. We submit these things to you once again in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We recognize that God encourages us, commands us to be citizens who pray for kings while serving the ultimate king. Look here, Paul begins with the issue of prayer, and he uses these variety of words and instructions to describe in some sense the urgency of prayer and the fervency that we give when we join in prayer. He says you need to give supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, and they need to be made for all people. And so when we give quiet reflection to our prayer lives, many of us will find that our prayer lives are decidedly centered on ourselves, right? And so if you're just kind of going in and you're evaluating what it looks like for you to pray, many of us, if we're going to be honest, over the last week, much of our prayer has been centered over people that we like. And who do we like more than ourselves? And so a lot of our prayers have been centered, God help me do this, God help me do that, God bless me in this way, God bless me in that way, God keep this person who seeks to restrict my blessing from having their way. And so all of these things kind of center on the locus of us, but what does he say? They need to be made for, everybody say, all people. 
Say it like you believe it. All people. Some of you do. Some of you do. And, and so it's a good thing that he tells us to come in here. And look at what he says. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And so he says, listen, there are people who desperately need you interceding on their behalf, either because they don't know the Lord, or they don't know they can ask, or they don't have faith that he'll bring it to them. And this is why he's placed you. And this is why he's placed them on your heart. So in that moment, when you're walking down the street and somebody pops into your mind, stop in that moment and pray for them. It could just be that the sovereign creator of the universe has placed them within your mind so that you can carry their request. And it doesn't take you texting them later and saying, you just need to know I prayed for you. I was walking down the street and your name popped into my head. Sometimes that's an encouragement. But sometimes what we do is we want people to come along and glad hand us and say, you're such a good person. Thank you for praying for me. All the while desiring to implant within their minds the false notion that we do that for everybody. No, we seldom do that. We're just very good at texting. Our thumbs are very, very nimble. Christians should be those who gladly pray for all. There should be no restriction upon our prayer, and there should be no hard-heartedness upon our prayer. It should be that which is generous, it should be that which is constant, and it should be that which touches everyone whom God places upon our heart. Every need we see, we should be praying, recognizing that most of the needs we see, we have a severe inability to address. We have a severe inability to change. But God, the sovereign creator of everything, the one that saw nothing and spoke directly into it and spun this whole thing into existence can change everything like that. And in fact, he will. So he moves from this, this rather generic understanding of pray for all these people, and you can almost see those there in Ephesus as Timothy's relating these things, saying, yes, yes, we're willing to do this. Yes, yes, we're willing to do this. And he says, and for kings and all those who are in high positions. And they would say, he means those who are willing to let us live harmoniously with them, correct? Certainly Paul means those who who rule kindly. Certainly, Paul means those who are willing to, you know, just kind of support Christianity. Well, that gets difficult. We recognize that Paul is certainly making a reference to the emperor in his discussion of kings, and likely, likely, not certainly, but likely the emperor that he's referring to is Nero. And so this, this same Nero that is spoken of so highly... That, that's a joke. But it's so, so poorly uh, in history is committing mass atrocities, not just amongst Christians, but amongst a variety of people. Nero, that the story goes, and it, it's not true, but, but, but this just kind of gets at the heart of who he is. Nero, that is described as standing on the hill playing a fiddle while Rome burned. Now, the fiddle wasn't invented then, and that's one of the reasons we know it's true. One of the reasons we know it's not true, rather. But Nero, who, who bought persecution to Christians, Nero, who when almost the entirety of the city of Rome burned, looked around and said, who can I blame this on? Who can I? Christians! This is the one Paul says that we need to pray for. This is the one that Paul says we need to pray for. He says, you need to be caught up in prayer First Peter, we recognize the, those authorities that God has placed. And Paul says, you need to be praying for them, offering supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for them. For them and all those who are in high position. Now, I've, I've been paying attention and looking at a 
of your social media feeds and listening to enough of your conversations to recognize that many of us have taken prayer and, and, and made it become this thing that is wholly trivial. And you can read this and you can see this and you can hear this in the way that people talk about prayer. They take Bible verses out of context to describe leaders that they don't care for and they say, this is what I'm going to pray for this person. All the while failing to recognize that the whole time that they are praying, you are engaging in conversation with the sovereign king of the universe who could snuff out your life in a moment. And God has placed you, Christian, as an intercessor for those who don't know him, not someone to call down fire upon them and upon their heads from heaven at your whim. God has not placed us to be judges and rulers. He's placed us to be intercessors. He's placed Christians as a stopgap. He has placed us to be soft-hearted. He has placed us to care for those who oppose us. So what does that mean for us in the here and now? In a few short weeks, an election will be decided. In just a couple of months, we will either continue to have Donald Trump as our president or we will have someone else. Perhaps Joe Biden will be elected to serve as president of the United States. But as Christians, our fundamental response to them in an application of this passage does not change. For the eight years Obama was in office, many Christians found themselves daily not praying that he would do his job well, but praying that he would fail, praying that it would be miserable, and praying that someone else would rise and take power. This isn't the role of Christians. Christians should be those who are easy to govern. And this is shocking for many of us. And this is frustrating for many of us. But whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden, our primary responsibility does not change. The sovereign creator, king of the universe, he alone is in charge. And in the application of this passage, what he calls us to is prayer. That prayer can look different. Listen, if we happen to have somebody who is an authority over us, we have a mayor, we have a senator, we have a representative, we have a governor... God, let it be that we have a president who is an out-and-out follower of Jesus. I mean, you can kind of picture this man or this woman. They're kind of gathered rare there in the Rose Garden. They're like, here, come in. Let's study the Bible together. They open it up. They're like, look here. And they're, they're just explaining with a wonderfully beautiful hermeneutic. And I mean, just all of these things. And you're like, this guy gets it. This woman gets it. They love the Lord. They're applying scripture. They're, they're not saying that we're Israel. All of these things, like they get the application of scripture. They love the Lord and they rule from this. We should definitely pray for that. And if we get a president and a man or a woman in office, and that's their heart, we should be there. Carrying banners, walking down the street and saying, glory, glory, hallelujah. But if we don't, our responsibility is still to pray. If we don't, our responsibility is still to let our hearts be supple and firmly entrusted into God's hands. Trusting in him and trusting in his rule. And look at the primary direction of our prayer. He says, you pray for them, why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. This is why I'm making the argument that Christians should be those who are easy to govern. Christians should be those who are easy to govern. When I was in college, I had a friend that would occasionally show up. He despised his roommates. And if they were you, your roommates, you would agree. They were truly terrible people. They had no sense of personal space, personal belongings, or hygiene. Like all the things that make Room Finder a fail. 
And so he would come over to our house quite often, but he would never really announce that he was coming over. He would never really announce his presence. And so what it looked like is getting done with work, getting done with class, opening the door and walking into the living room, kind of walking down the hall. And I'm just kind of passing, just walking into the kitchen. And somewhere over here, I'd hear, what's up? And just, it would startle me. It'd be so incredibly overwhelming because he is sitting over here in quiet bliss, in peaceful presence, and I never knew he was there. Sometimes I'd look around and he would be so frustrated with his roommates that he would take that frustration out cleaning our house. (laughs) And in those moments, I was tempted to pray, God, allow their frustration to increase to the cleanliest degree. Let him be so moved in frustration that he takes to the toilets, Lord. (laughs) My prayer life is not that strong. My faith is not that effective. But he would be in there and doing these things. He would live a quiet and peaceful existence in our midst. And I had other friends that when they would show up, you knew they were there. And you could never be quick enough to lock the doors. You could never be quick enough to hide your food. You could never be quick enough to put up your valuables many of whom would disappear and all your food would certainly be gone and you would know your food is gone not by opening the pantry and looking but by seeing the mounds of crumbs in the sink because they couldn't do this number. Sink, dishwasher. Sink, dishwasher. They just did sink and left it. Trash and left it. And so within that we see those two examples of of one who would live a, a quiet and a peaceful existence the other who you certainly knew their presence and what we have seen and what we continue to feel in many of our lives is a tendency to be those who certainly allow our presence to be felt. Many of us have spent the last several months debating whether or not Governor Greg Abbott had the authority to issue his edict. We've been, we've been arguing and, and, and wrangling about this and, and leading people to, to no end in conversations about this instead of asking the question, what would it look like to respond to this as a Christian? I may not agree with it. I, 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 I may even disagree that he had the authority to do this. But what would it look like as a Christian? Is, is there a way in which I can live my life? Is there a way in which I can speak about him? Is there a way in which I can go about these things that might lead to a quiet and peaceful life. Because look at what he attaches to it. He says a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every respect. And so we find ourselves in the middle of having leaders that we occasionally disagree with. And what he says is that's fine. It's, 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 it's okay for you to disagree with them. What is not okay is for you to engage in behavior that is ungodly and that is undignified either in your speech or just the way that you carry yourself, your deportment before those that God has placed in authority over you. And this gets decidedly difficult because we recognize, some of us, the slippery slope that comes when we yield up more and more authority, when we yield up more and more freedoms to those that we have voted into office as a people. Some churches have felt the sting and and, and, and the what they feel to be a punitive enforcement of their right to gather and to worship. But even with inside that, we see a variety of responses from different churches. The Baptist Press reported yesterday on a case that started some months ago reporting about Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. See, the the mayor in D.C. had decided that churches could not gather more than 100 people or 50% of its membership, of its occupancy, whichever is the lesser number. 
And so Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. went and they appealed. And they said, hey, listen, our core conviction is that we cannot live stream because they have this understanding that a church is not a building that can be opened or closed. A church is not an event that can be watched. A church is a community that gathers regularly. And from this theological perspective, they entered into what they believed to be a quiet and a peaceful protest against a governmental authority that they thought didn't stand. They thought it was inappropriate. They thought it violated the laws of this land. They thought it was a gross overreach. And so they asked humbly, can we have an exemption? And listen to what they asked for. They said, our church's commitment is to gather, we are, but we are willing to gather outside. We are willing to enforce social distancing, and we are willing even outside socially distancing for all of us to wear masks. They weren't thumbing their noses and saying, we're going to gather. We don't care what you do. You can bring suits against us. You cannot shut us down. They were quiet, and they were respectful, and they sought to be easy to govern. On September the 22nd, after two failed attempts, humbly requesting a waiver, humbly requesting an exemption, they decided as a church body they voted to file suit. And in the days subsequent to them filing suit, you saw senators, you saw the Trump administration, you saw a whole host of people join in and, and, and agree with them in this pursuit. And ultimately, they received an injunction on Friday afternoon that they could now gather just as they requested, outside, socially distanced, and masked. Now, this is a moment where many of us would rejoice and, and have some more grown-up version of nanny-nanny-boo-boo, right? Some of us, that is our grown-up version. But listen to what their response is. Speaking of Mayor Muriel Bowser, they said the church continues to appreciate Bowser's attempt. This is a person who said you couldn't meet. This is a person who said you couldn't gather. This is a person who forced the church to leave their property and to go right across the county line where they could gather. We continue to appreciate Bowser's attempts to protect the public health of our city while balancing the importance of various First Amendment rights. Our congregation continues to pray for God's mercy in ending the ongoing pandemic that he would protect the lives and well-beings of our neighbors. Now listen to their hearts. And that many in our city in the coming months would experience the far greater freedom that comes from forgiveness through Jesus Christ. They get it. They want to work well those who God has placed in authority over them. And we live in a land of freedoms and we can exercise them in a number, of, a number of different ways. But the thing which binds our hearts, which governs our actions, is that we should desire to live a quiet and peaceful life. Now some of us, by our actions, you want anything other than quiet and peaceful. You want your way and you don't care what you have to burn down to get it. And you're sinning. You're disobeying the clear word of God. You're not representing the heart of God. And God would have me tell you to stop. There are ways for us to be an advocate of a different position. There are ways to engage and to do so in such a way that is godly and dignified. Now listen, doing so in a godly and dignified way does not 
find the hands of God that if we do these things well and if we pray the right way that we will live a life unencumbered, that we will live a life unaffected, that we will live a life free from persecution. Paul writing again to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, everybody say, will be persecuted. That's not something to get excited about. This is the expectation for Christians. This should be the expectation for the men and women we disciple. This should be the expectation and the word we give to them when we share the gospel. Are you sure you want to follow Jesus? Are you sure you want to live a godly life? Because the expectation, the certainty according to Paul, is that we will be persecuted. It'll have a variety of different looks, and it'll feel differently to different ones of us. But persecution is real nonetheless. We should be those who are, as Americans, and given the freedoms to be involved in the political process, involved. We should seek to elect those who would represent our worldview, those who might place into effect laws that we would say these accord with Scripture. They are just. They establish justice for all. We should pray for those who disagree with us. We should be advocates against them in elections. And we should make determinations when it comes time to vote according to what the word says. What is this candidate's response to life? What is this candidate's response and their opinion in terms of incarceration? How does this candidate seek to address and deal with homelessness and poverty? How does this person carry themselves? What has their administration done? What is their administration claiming that they will do? And as a Christian, when we line these things up and we submit ourselves and our hearts to the Lord, we should be those who vote, who make decisions in line with where the Bible is leading us. You may not get what you're praying for. You may not get what you're voting for. Still we pray. Still we trust. And still we live godly and dignified lives. Because we recognize something much greater is at stake than our freedoms. He says this is good. This is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. When God sees us acting in accordance with his words in a time where we would otherwise choose not to, he says this glorifies God in heaven. This is godly. This brings him honor and glory, and this is the heart of the Lord, verses 4 through 6. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Did you know that in your response to how you act in the here and now, that as men and women around you see you, as they hear about you, as they read the things that you say, they are deciding on what it looks like to follow the gospel on the basis of how you follow the gospel. He says, this is who God is. This is good that you do these things because God desires for everyone to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Your life is reporting truth whether you believe in the gospel and follow its obedience or not, and you are a son or a daughter of the king, and as such, while you pray for earthly kings, you serve wholeheartedly a heavenly king. Amen? 
He says, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he hits us with this theological truth. He says, there is one God. There are a multitude of leaders. And there are a multitude of those who would aspire, delight, and want to be our leaders. But there is one God. He says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who God gave or rather, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so we begin to see the difficult intersection of how we act and how we pray and how people see us and how they read us. Recognizing this, listen, if you're not a follower and believer in Jesus Christ in here, there is nothing governing your actions. If you disobey the law to a certain degree, at some point, perhaps you'll pay a penalty for that. But if you are a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have willingly submitted yourself to follow him. That everything God says, you are honor bound to do. This means those things that we delight in doing. This means those things that are a struggle to do. To love your enemy, to pray for those who persecute you. As Paul gives us here, to be those who are easy to govern. To live a quiet and a peaceful life. And in so much as we do this, we're creating space and an opportunity for people to come to know God. But in so much as we don't do this, what we do instead is to fill the environment and to fill the people around us with, with not a knowledge of the gospel, but a knowledge of what we think politically and how we feel about this law or that law. Now you might say, but it's important that people know that we challenge their assumptions and that we tell them the logical consequence of this or that. And I would say, yes, those things are important. But the thing that is most important is that in your attempts to do that, you don't completely undercut your presentation of the gospel. It is very difficult to come to someone full of fire and venom and hate and to completely dress down their political opinion, completely dress down their worldview, completely dress down the lens through which they see the world, and then in the same lens turn and say, you just know that God loves you, you're a moron, but he does love you. Politically, you're ignorant, you're reprehensible, you're awful. Uh, hold on, thethorse.com. You're a schmuck. And, uh, no, okay. And so it just kind of run through all these various things and in the same vein turn to them and say, but God loves you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to come to know his son Jesus. This is who Jesus is. He's a mediator between God and man. You see how these things would be ridiculous. They may be ridiculous, but this is the, the line that many of us are following. You say this is a ridiculous example and nobody actually behaves like this. Many of us behave. Many of us give a quiet pass to people who behave like this if they're advocating a position we agree with. Man, if you're a Christian, if you know that other person's a Christian, you hear them speaking in such a way that does not wonderfully, beautifully display the gospel of Jesus Christ, does not represent well Jesus to a lost person, then you owe it to them to speak to them. Go to them and say, man, have you considered how a lost person hearing the tone of your voice, the words you're using to describe people who disagree with you, 
how a lost person would feel about that same gospel that you seem to feel very strongly about two Sundays out of the month. One Sunday out of the month. There is no halfway of having Jesus. This text tells us that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. God looked down from heaven and after the fall, he recognized that we were all marred by sin. We had this extreme inability to address, to handle sin on our own. This is the plight and this is the situation that lost people find themselves in today the world over. They are in desperate need of a mediator. And they are in desperate need of you to tell them about this mediator. That they do not have to live in sin. That they do not have to live as men and women who are preparing to face the wrath of God. But there are men and women who can be saved. There are men and women who can experience the forgiveness of God on the basis of the mediator, Jesus, who came and stood between a wrathful God, rightly pouring out his vengeance and his justice upon a wayward humanity. He stood in the middle and took that wrath upon himself. And then he goes back to the Father and he says, there with me. I take their sin upon my life. They take my pure life upon their own. And the good news for you and I today is that we can live lives as freed, released, forgiven people. And the greater news for the people in our neighborhoods and the people in our communities and the people that we come across is that God has sent you and I out, freed, released people, as ambassadors to men and women who have drastically different worldviews, drastically different political opinions, and you're their greatest hope. The message you carry with inside you, the message that comes out of your mouth, articulating the hope they might find in the gospel. My prayer for us as a people as we continue through this season is that we would not invalidate our ability to rightly proclaim the gospel by holding on to a lesser hope by being hateful, by being undignified, all the while seeking to win a lesser battle. Paul says, man, this is what I was appointed a preacher for. And friends, this is what God has saved you for. God appointed him a preacher, an apostle, to go out and to tell the Gentiles about the good news of the gospel. God has saved you unto good works. God has saved you unto gospel proclamation. Let us be those as Christians who are a prayer for people, praying for all, praying for those that God has placed in authority over us, and let us by our service and by our speech point men and women to Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, you give us an opportunity to declare the gospel. God, some of us are declaring a gospel in the way that we live, but it is a false gospel. So God, would you renew our hearts with a remembrance of the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you call us to live out that true gospel faithfully to the men and women that we encounter who do not know your son, Jesus? 
God, I pray for any in this hearing or in this room who have yet to submit themselves to follow Jesus. They've been dissuaded and frustrated by the acts of reported Christians, by the things they said and how they've seen them live their lives. God, would you cause them not to base their evaluation of Christianity upon anyone else other than Jesus. Your son who came, who lived a perfectly sinless life, who died and in whom you raised again, overcoming sin and death. God, as they evaluate Christianity, that they would evaluate it on the goodness of their Savior, not the failure of those who imperfectly follow him. God, would you break our hearts? Would you change our minds? Would you help us to live faithfully unto you? And God, would you give us leaders to do likewise? Father, would you burden our hearts to pray for those who you have placed in authority? We pray for some of their salvations. We pray that in spite of their worldview that they would bring us laws which are just. God, I pray that you would guide us as we prepare to make decisions in the upcoming election. We want to love you. We want to honor you in all things and in all ways. In Christ's name, amen.